Unmet expectations can be so frustrating, amen? (laughs) Doesn't take the greatest marriage counselor in the world to say any two people that have unmet expectations and those aren't communicated can lead to great frustration and pain. And sometimes we have good reasons to hold our expectations. If you work 20 hours, you expect to get paid for 20 hours. Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. But sometimes we can let that kind of thinking, that works-based kind of thinking, bleed over into our faith. And we can think, what I put in is what I get out. There may even be passages of scripture like Proverbs 12, 21 that says, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. And if we're not careful to consider the genre of that verse, wisdom literature, Proverbs, that it's meant to be proverbial, that it's generally true, we might take any suffering we experience as divine judgment against wickedness. In God's wisdom, he gave us the book of Proverbs in the wisdom literature and also the book of Job. Sometimes we think that faithful obedience means that things will get easier for us. Anybody in here ever come to faith and your life got worse? Perhaps in a work situation, you are aware of a coworker doing something against company policy or even against the law. And when you do the right thing, you might have consequences come back on you. Students, perhaps there's a group project a film set or something that you decline to work on because of the values that art project is holding. They go against your conscience. And then lo and behold, when you aren't invited by those classmates to work on future projects, even ones that you would feel have a clear conscience about, that can be painful and frustrating. One of our students uh, lost a childhood friend last week to cancer, a Christian, young Christian man, got cancer. Perhaps you're headed to the mission field and right before you're supposed to get on the plane, you break your ankle. It's so frustrating. Perhaps you've been at the start of a what could turn into a romantic relationship, but you've called it off because maybe they're not a Christian. And then years go by and you still long to be married. You think, I'm doing the right thing, right? If you're reading the book of Exodus and you read chapter one, two, three, four, it almost 
if not for some foreshadowing that the Lord himself gives, it almost feels like the book of Exodus is going to end in chapter 5. There's people, we know their situation, we know they're oppressed, we know that there's going to be this uh, human means of deliverance that the Lord has ordained. Moses, he's being raised up. The Lord has revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. Moses objects. He's not a perfect mediator, but God is faithful. And it feels like, all right, let's go. Time to get out of Egypt. But we come to chapter 5, and things actually get worse before they get better. God is going to speak through his, this is, we're going to cover two chapters this morning, so I'm just going to give a real quick broad overview so we can map out where we're going. God does speak through his prophet or prophets, Moses and Aaron, tells them what the Lord has said. He wants his people to come out, worship him in the wilderness. But Pharaoh does not know the Lord or care anything about obeying him or even his people obeying him. And so not only does he not let them go, but he in fact, he in fact then makes life pretty miserable for the Israelites. We'll get into that in a little bit, but suffice to say, he is abusive. He is cruel. And so the people of Israel are like, what is happening? They appeal to Pharaoh. They appeal to Moses. They're like, we were just here slaves already anyway. What did we ever do to deserve things getting worse. The Lord himself then in chapter 6 answers the question Pharaoh had asked, who is the Lord? Well, he tells them again, I am the Lord. The first nine verses, the first eight verses of chapter 6 we'll read together in a moment, but they are a beautiful revelation of the Lord further telling his people about himself and exactly what he is going to do. And so in this, as just a brief little aside, we see that it is good for us that Exodus does not end in chapter 5. It is good that we have the Lord explaining and interpreting his actions for us. Michael Lawrence is a commentator that is, is writing about this postmodern world we live in and how there's this question of can we even understand meaning when we are so removed from geography and history? And Michael Lawrence is writing that, yes, there is such a thing as correct meaning of a text precisely because God, who created the world, our brains, and thus our ability to use language, is himself a speaking God. It was God who created rationality and language so that language could accurately convey meaning from one mind to another mind. 
And he himself proved this not only by acting in history, but also by condescending to use human language to authoritatively explain and interpret his own actions. We see this again and again in the pages of Scripture. God not only sends the ten plagues against Egypt, he speaks to Moses and Aaron explaining what he is doing. God not only parts the Red Sea, he speaks and explains what he's about to do and why. God not only makes Israel a nation, he speaks audibly to the whole nation from Mount Sinai, telling them so. And so, yes, things get worse at first. Aligning yourself with God sometimes means aligning yourself against his enemies who have the ability to make your life miserable. But even worsening circumstances don't change our God and his character and his plans. And this passage reveals that none of that has changed. The Lord is still unfolding his plans and revealing himself in exactly the way that he intended. He is going to do it through miraculous, glorious means but he's also going to do it through the most surprising, simple, human means. Chapter 6 ends with what seems like this hard gear shift of the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Like what? We were, just, we were tracking with the story, why this here? Shouldn't this be at the beginning of the book when we're like being introduced to Moses and Aaron? But I think Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is highlighting that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And what he said he's going to do is amazing and miraculous, yes, but he's also going to get glory by using what is weak in the world to bring shame to the strong. Simple, imperfect Moses and Aaron are going to be the mouthpiece for the Lord. And all of this, I pray, will help us and encourage us that our strength would be fortified against the discouragement that comes when we believe the lie that our obedience is somehow like a coin going into a vending machine that should just bring us comfort. And I hope to remind us this morning that our Lord is reward enough. And that Christ, our better mediator, who came humbly and endured the cross humbly, is the means to receiving that most gracious gift of himself. If you would stand with me and turn to Exodus chapter 6, I will read these first nine verses. Hear the word of the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Father, we confess that we are weak, needy people and our spirits are easily broken. Our spirits are easily broken. Father, I intercede now for my brothers and sisters who barely made it here today. Would you comfort them by your Holy Spirit? And for those in this room, Lord, who do not yet know you, would you be gracious to break their spirit with the gospel? I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Looking back now, starting at chapter 5, we see unexpected circumstances. Unexpected circumstances. Moses and Aaron are coming off of what should be this best news. The Lord has met with them. They have conveyed that message to the elders of Israel. We saw that at the end of chapter 4. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. They're coming out of this worship service. Okay, let's go. Worship service here. Let's go have a real worship service at Sinai. Let's do it. But when they go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So he's not even yet saying that they're going to be gone forever. They're just saying the Lord wants us to go worship him. We want to go have a feast. Our God is a gracious, good God, and he has invited us, his people, to go celebrate him and his goodness in the wilderness. Pharaoh, let us go do that. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, 
who is the Lord? If Exodus were a sitcom, this is where the audience track would be, oh. We have just meditated for the last couple weeks on who the Lord is and the significance that he introduced himself by name, the I am. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh does not know the Lord and therefore he does not care about obeying the Lord. To know the Lord is to long to obey him and to love to obey him. The world does not know the Lord, and so to obey him is foolishness. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Verse 3, Moses and Aaron explain who God is and introduce that, in fact, there are consequences for disobedience to the Lord. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh assumes the worst and responds with cruelty. They've been making bricks, mixing clay and straw together to make the bricks. But he puts this stupid rule in front of them saying, no more straw, but you have to make the same quota, the same number of bricks. William, you're probably our premier expert in concrete in here. You're laying some foundation with rebar in it. You're laying some foundation without rebar in it. One is going to be stronger than the other, right? (laughs) Thank you. I thought so, but I want to make sure. So the straw adds strength to the bricks, but also, and I found this out through Wikipedia, adding straw to the bricks, the, the clay is a very fine material. And so it takes a long time to dry on its own. Adding straw kind of expands it a little bit and it helps the bricks dry faster. So truly, to 
to not allow the Israelites to use clay, to use straw in the bricks, but to require the same number to be made each day is impossible. It cannot happen. This is not just Pharaoh giving some sort of consequence. This is, this is cruelty. He is offended by what Moses and Aaron have asked, and he is leveraging the authority he has in an abusive way at the expense of his slaves, the Israelites. You'll notice there was a mention of the taskmasters and the foremen. The taskmasters would have been the Egyptian people overseeing the brick making, but it's probably best practice if you're going to enslave a people to not only have your people as the taskmasters, but there's also these Israelite foremen. These were Israelites who were also under the taskmasters, but over the slaves to oversee this work. Look at verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Verse 15, then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. At this time in, in culture, there are kings and then everybody else. And so the people who have been living as slaves their entire life, the foremen at least, see themselves as servants of the king, Pharaoh. This unrealistic rule is put on them. And then when they can't meet it, they're beaten. And so they appeal to the king and they say, why are you treating your servants, us? We're your servants, Pharaoh. Why are you treating us this way? And so look at what they do. That doesn't work out. They then go to Moses and Aaron, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. 
because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. As far as they know, the introduction of their God, Yahweh, and what he has said has only made things worse for them. Like, only made things worse. They mix metaphors there and they say, we stink in the sight of Pharaoh. We are repulsive to the Egyptians. So thanks a lot, Moses and Aaron. This Yahweh that you're introducing us to, may he judge you. If he's, if he's so righteous, everything that you have just said to Pharaoh has objectively made things worse for us. They're experiencing injustice firsthand, and they first turn and take it out on Moses and Aaron. They say that the Egyptians have swords in their hands. They are ready to kill us. Our lives are in danger. Before you came along, at least we were just slaves. Now we're slaves who could be killed at any moment. And so Moses is frustrated. In verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord Adonai, Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Even Moses is left questioning God. He doesn't even address him by his name. Because Moses knows that he's been faithful. He did what the Lord, albeit with some objection at first, he eventually did it. He went and told Pharaoh what the Lord wanted him to tell Pharaoh. And again, even though the Lord had foreshadowed that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, when the moment of suffering comes, that slips out of his mind. All he knows is the suffering he's experienced. And all he can see is that is what God has not done yet. He has not delivered his people at all. Beloved, are you suffering today? And has that taken your eyes off of the Lord and his goodness and his presence with you and the promises that he's given you in scripture. This is real suffering. Look now at chapter 6, to hear what the Lord says for himself. Those were our unexpected circumstances, but now we will see undeserved grace 
undeserved grace. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The Lord reminds him of his promises. says that they have not, not come to pass, but I am promising again that, that you will be delivered. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord? The Lord answered, I am the Lord. There's going to be three times in this section that he says the same thing he said out of the burning bush because he is the unchanging God. And for us to simply hear him introduce his name again is undeserved grace. It is him demonstrating his presence with us. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Don't call me Adonai. I have told you my name. And I will tell it to you again in grace. He reminds Moses that he appeared to the forefathers. He reminds him of his covenant faithfulness, that it's not only that he is a gracious God, but he has acted out of his grace. He made a covenant and he has been faithful and he is continuing to be faithful even in this moment as the circumstances are, wor are worsening. He is working. In verse 7, sorry, not verse 7, where do we leave off? Verse 6. In verse 6, he introduces these seven I will statements. If at the burning bush he introduced that he is who he is, the great I am, that is central to his character, he is now going into that more gracious detail of what he is about to do, what this covenant that he has made, what it is going to look like in detail, in the specifics. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. It's the second time he said it to Moses. He wants Moses to say it to the people. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. Let's pause there with these first two I will statements. These are captured by the idea of deliverance. Before the Exodus could be this metaphor for Christians in a spiritual sense, being freed from slavery, Israel first had to literally be freed from slavery. The Messiah 
couldn't come historically through the people of Israel if Israel is wiped out while they're in slavery. So the Lord meets them where they are first. We'll get to the spiritual ramifications in a minute, but I want you to know, Israel, that I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. That bring out is a strong, it's a snatching. I will, I will rip you away from them. Pharaoh does not have his grasp on you. I have my grasp on you. And I'm going to demonstrate it by pulling you out of this land to myself. There's this idea of deliverance. There's also this gospel truth of redemption. Look at the next I will statement halfway through verse 6. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will redeem you. Let's not let this word be overly familiar to us. This idea of redemption in the Hebrew is goel. You have to remember in this setting there, there wasn't the same civil authorities you could always appeal to. There weren't the same banking systems. If, if someone fell into debt, they couldn't just file for bankruptcy. They perhaps had to sell their land to pay off that debt. Or, if that wasn't enough, sell themselves into bankruptcy. That would have been not good for that family at this time because you lose that land. It's now out of the family. And so what happens to your family name, to your inheritance? So a Goel, a redeemer, a family member who would have been more well-off had the privilege of being able to step in and pay the price to redeem their family member. There's a financial aspect to it. Think of the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. There is a family dynamic that's being introduced here. The Lord doesn't just own Israel in the same way Pharaoh owns them as slaves. He says, you are my people and I am your Goel. I am going to redeem you. But look at how he is going to redeem I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Salvation throughout Scripture happens through judgment. In some theological circles today, there's debate on whether the church has appropriately or overemphasized penal substitutionary atonement. Do we talk too much about the wrath of God? Should we emphasize rather the love of God in the cross? I'm not looking to wade into those waters per se at this moment. But suffice to say, throughout Scripture, salvation happens through judgment. It's not unrelated. Judgment is material to the act of, of salvation. 
here, the Lord is going to judge Israel in order to redeem his people. Egypt will end up paying the price. But this only foreshadows the glorious truth. I thought I wrote down the cross reference so I could say it exactly, but Romans 3, 24 to 26, that God is both just and the justifier. In the cross, the Lord demonstrated that salvation comes through judgment, not on the judgment of another nation though, but on the Son of God. Jesus bears the judgment and that's what makes salvation available for his people. That's what makes him the Redeemer with a capital R. There is deliverance, there is redemption, but there is also adoption. The family language only gets stronger. It's not that we are redeemed to then this neutral, distant relative state. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord's people are delivered, they are redeemed, they are made sons. And I say made sons, recognizing that there are, yes, sons and daughters as a part of the people of God. But thinking of the history, sonship mattered. The sons received the inheritance. And so it is appropriate for brothers and sisters today in the church to recognize that in Christ we are called sons of God. Sons receive the inheritance. This fourth gospel truth is inheritance or possession. I will bring you, verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. One more time, I am the Lord. Undeserved grace. Undeserved grace. Grace. There is a potential pitfall I think we have to watch out for living in 2024 in the West where our, our social imaginary, as Carl Truman says, has been so shaped by Marxism We, we assume that suffering entitles you to benefits. And let me just say cautiously, I am not only speaking of the political left today. The political right uses lots of language about the big, the big government, big Hollywood putting down the little guy. That is Marxist language as well. This idea that there is someone in control that's got their, their thumb on us. That's all I'm going to say about politics. But I just want to recognize that sometimes, yes, we can 
in the church have this misunderstanding, thinking that our obedience earns us compassion and comfort from God, but also in the world we're living in, there's a, there's this idea that suffering itself entitles you to comfort. And that's because our world doesn't understand grace. The Lord doesn't just come to people, to his people and say, you know what? You're right, Israel. That wasn't cool of me to let Pharaoh be hard on you, and so now I owe you something. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in a beautiful God who does deliver, who does redeem. And he doesn't just bring us to a neutral place or a place of comfort apart from him. His grace is not just that he alleviates our burdens. It's that he enters into our burdens with us. And so my third point is an unassuming savior. These covenant promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And he is a better prophet than Moses. He is a better priest than Aaron. Let's honor the word of God as all being breathed out by God and useful for our teaching and correction and training. And let's read the end of chapter 6. Starting in verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. All right, I just said I want you to come worship me in the wilderness. Now we're done. Tell Pharaoh that we're done. Verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. That's kind of a weird phrase. He's going to say it again at the end of the chapter. Spoiler alert. Commentaries don't have a, a clear understanding of if this is supposed to be him referring to some sort of speech impediment, like Pastor Doug alluded to possibly last week. Or, and maybe I would just barely lean a little bit more toward this, that similar to Isaiah's language in chapter 6, woe is me, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The Lord has just retold Moses who he is, and he's told it in more detail relating to his covenant and his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And so Moses says, I am of uncircumcised lips. My mouth doesn't deserve to be a part of this covenant. Whichever one, that's what Moses says, and the Lord says, But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, 
Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. And if you're expecting to keep going through the sons of Israel by their tribes, notice that we don't do that. We stop at Levi. And now we go to Levi's sons. Verse 17. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. We heard the, the length of Levi's life, and now we hear the length of Kohath's life. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri, sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, Elkanah and Abiyasef. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. Genealogies in the word of the Lord are always doing something more than just giving you the details. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using this genealogy to highlight something, especially at this point in Exodus. Some generations are skipped in 2 Chronicles, no, 1 Chronicles, I believe, chapter 7. There are 12 generations between um, Jacob and Joshua. So there's less here, but it's because Moses is highlighting something. He's highlighting on either side of this passage where Aaron and Moses are told to bring the people out of Egypt, and Moses objects. Here, let's finish the, the chapter real quick. In 26, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of, Egypt, of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So look at the structure here. There's that paragraph from verses 10 to 13 where we see Moses, Moses and Aaron, genealogy of Moses and Aaron, then 26 and 27, Aaron and Moses, 28 to 30, Moses. There's structure that is in a literary form highlighting, one, we're introducing Aaron. He's about to play a significant role in the coming chapters. 
There are Easter eggs in here. If you go on reading past Exodus in the book of Numbers, Korah is introduced, and specifically Korah's rebellion where they were rebelling against Moses and Aaron, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They had forgotten about chapter 5, but we're not preaching Numbers today. I think this section is also highlighting, though, the glorious ways in which the Lord sometimes works through extremely ordinary means. He has just unpacked in the first half of chapter 6 who he is and what he is doing. That he is the all-powerful God and he is going to do what he has said he is going to do. And we know from the coming chapters, it's going to be wild. But significantly, before we get there, before plagues just start dropping into the scene here, he pauses to highlight that the way he is also going to work and the way he is also going to do this is by continuing to send his mediator, who himself says, I am of uncircumcised lips. I don't deserve this office. Why would you use me to do this? And all we can say is that it is the Lord's good pleasure to use ordinary people to carry out his his glorious plans. This should point our eyes forward from Exodus and see that that truth is most clearly demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke God's word truly. Jesus did not just speak for God. He spoke as God in the first person. He spoke as God because he is the word made flesh. He entered into the suffering of his people not just in a political sense, but he was born of woman under the law, as one born under the law. And yet, he did not sin. He lived a righteous life that Moses and Aaron could not have lived. They were sons of Adam. Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfectly righteous life. And so, when he comes to redeem through judgment, he is judging sin for his people in himself on the tree. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He has taken us to be his people and he is our God in so much more of an intimate way than even the Israelites could have imagined. 
He knows your suffering, beloved, better than you do. Not just in a factual sense, but he has endured more suffering than you have. This is what strengthens our faith. When we see that he is the reward, that we don't endure suffering in order to earn some reward from him, he is the reward and he is with us. That is when we say with the apostles in Acts 5, they left the presence of the council. They've just been persecuted, but they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul says in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. It is not meaningless. It is not random and it is not apart from his purposes. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Church, we have a better possession than even what was promised to the Israelites. We have a king who is ruling and reigning, and as his church, we get to be an outpost today of that kingdom. There is going to be opposition. We are in enemy territory. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard. It's hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. But it's not hard apart from him. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray together. Father, we are so humbled to consider your grace. I'm reminded of the hymn that says, Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. We thank you that Jesus is our Judge, that he has taken the penalty for the sins that we have committed. We truly are 
of uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised hearts. We do not deserve to be made a part of your family. Lord, I'm again just burdened as I'm praying for, for those here who maybe your Holy Spirit is working in their heart, working salvation in their heart at this moment. Would you open their eyes, give them ears to hear? Would this word take root in their heart? Deep root. Would you cause new life to happen? Would you demonstrate your gloriness and your faithfulness to this word even now by adding one more to the number of your people? I ask that their heart would just be drawn to you, that they would long to obey you because they see your graciousness and that they would take the first step of obedience by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. Father, for your church, I ask that we would see you as our reward. Thank you for sending Jesus to earn our salvation. We praise you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.